Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the government's identity management solution may mean using someone else's solution. Basically, how could I ask the DMV to vouch for me, say with a mobile driver's license app, rather than have login.gov or the VA or another agency basically try and create the new digital DMV to replicate that crappy experience I already went through. The new tool for planning tomorrow's workforce isn't so new after all. They've got to look at their organization with that foresight capability, anticipate what their workforce needs are going to be for the future, map a plan to take their current workforce and turn it into that. And what could change the way the government thinks about cybersecurity? Maybe we'll see our adversaries pivoting towards other ways of influencing us, other ways of stealing value from us. Maybe their tactics will change based on our approach, but this is an evolving effort It's Wednesday, May 17th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. 53 federal agencies will be using endpoint detection and response technologies by the end of this fiscal year, according to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. CISA's Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity, Eric Goldstein, tells the House Homeland Security Committee his organization's helping 26 agencies with the tools now. Goldstein calls the progress CISA's making in becoming the lead agencies for civilian cyber, quote, tremendous. The Army will use the Defense Department's cyber-accepted service authorities to bring on more civilian cyber talent. Army Secretary Christine Warmoth says the service is still having trouble competing with the private sector six years after Congress granted the authorities. Warmoth says the Army's finding talent in places it didn't expect to, but still can't find enough to meet its demand. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Friday is the deadline for getting votes in for the best bosses in federal IT. You can find a link to see the nominees and vote in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Department of Veterans Affairs will add the login.gov identity management tool to its website. The VA got a $10 million award from the Technology Modernization Fund to do the work. Jeremy Grant's Managing Director of Technology Business Strategy at Venable. He's former Senior Executive Advisor at the National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Jeremy, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. What's your takeaway from the fact that VA is integrating login.gov into its options, not going to it exclusively, but giving vets the option to use it moving forward? Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Francis. I'd say, you know, the VA's decision, they, they talked about this a couple months ago that they were going to start moving in this direction. Look, I think anything that's giving, you know, Americans choice in terms of how they can sign up for account, log in, prove who they are is good. Um, so, you know, the VA has been working, you know, for some time uh, with, you know, private vendors like IDME. They've been supporting DS Login, which is a defense department login that's being used for, you know, low and medium assurance applications. I think as login's getting more capable, it's another good option to provide. Um, the big question I have is, and, and I think this isn't just for VA, but for a lot of agencies, what does login deliver for identity proofing? Login.gov, you know, to date has been focused on, you know, what I would call account management and single sign-on. How do you log in with, you know, Francis Rose at foo.com and you have a password and, you know, a second factor, and you can use that across the government. But, you know, just because I have an email that says Francis Rose and it doesn't mean I'm actually you. In fact, I Maybe after this podcast, we'll go off and create something to, to mess around with you. I'd advise against um, that if you don't mind. Yeah. So anyways, it's, it's the identity proofing side that, you know, login still hasn't solved. Uh, and so I think, you know, 
look, they've they've got a big budget right now, uh, thanks to you know some of the money they got from some of the coronavirus relief packages. I think it's 187 million dollars. You know, they said they're looking right now at how they're actually going to solve identity proofing that you know what this calls identity assurance level IAL two, which is you know pretty much where you need to be for anything involving OSE you know health data of veterans, which is what the My Healthy Vet app is that's that's integrating with login. Is there a risk from a customer experience perspective of too much choice, though, in the identity management field? Because you mentioned they're adding login.gov to these other options that they have. And for someone who's coming into the system for the first time and establishing her identity, maybe that person just decides this is too complicated and I'll just figure out some other way or do without. Yeah, you know, the I'll t- say balance in, in choice is really important. You know, in the identity space, it's what people call the NASCAR problem. Uh, which, you know, so you think of a NASCAR, you know, uh, racer and, you know, all the different stickers that are on it, you can't really make any of them out. And if you suddenly are allowing people 15, 20 choices and they see all these logos, it can be pretty overwhelming. Uh, and so I do think that's something that the VA and others are going to need to uh, to handle uh, is, you know, how do you actually give people choice without overwhelming them? And I think there's some, you know, good work that's been done in the, you know, the user experience world of the identity sector uh, that's got some good recommendations there. But one of the biggest issues can be, you know, if you only log into this once a year, you might forget how you signed in last time. And then you end up with multiple accounts all tied to it. And then you have a you know, whole other issue in terms of resolving, you know, which accounts actually belong to you. What are the incentives for the agencies to have multiple options available as VA is doing? And what potentially would be an incentive to GSA? And I don't mean to pick on GSA, but what's the incentive to them to promote pretty aggressively login.gov as the solution that the federal government should use? Well, I think for agencies, look, I think every agency, you need to have some choice in that you need to basically find a way to, you know, meet your customers where they are. So look, you know, I'm, you know, heavy digital, I've got, you know, multiple devices, I'm easy to serve online. You know, you're going to have some veterans at the VA who still don't have a smartphone or they're not going to have access to a laptop or broadband. And so I think you're going to need to have multiple paths for somebody to really prove who they are uh, so that if they're looking to do something online, uh, you know, they can do so. And so I get excited about, you know, giving people different options and that no matter what the customer's, you know, likely path is going to be to come into an agency for service, you're able to offer them something. But, you know, as you pointed out before, it can get a little overwhelming. Um, You know, my personal take is, Signing in, you know, to an you know an agency after you already have proven who you are, you know, that's not necessarily something where I think single sign-on is going to matter as much, and that it's getting easier and easier for agencies to just, you know, start to deliver uh, passwordless solutions, so using FIDO authentication, um, you know, to people, and so agencies can manage their own, you know, authentication, but they're going to need help on the identity proofing side because that's something that you know is not something that agencies are really in the business of. And in terms of GSA's motivations, you know, I'm not sure. They've had a team, I think, since 2014 working on, you know, login.gov or its, its predecessors. Um, I'll say they're they're very enthusiastic about it. Um, you know, the big challenge that they're dealing with right now, as I mentioned before, is remote identity proofing is really hard. Um, and, you know, we saw the IRS getting some hot water with it a few months ago, uh, in part because, you know, they were working with a vendor that was, you know, essentially asking people to, you know, take a picture of their driver's license and then hold up their phone and take a selfie. Um, look, that can be a very effective solution, but, you know, not everybody's comfortable with, you know, doing with the face. I think one of the challenges that both agencies and industry are looking at is if you can't use a biometric like that to really prove that you're not, you know, 
part of some, you know, Russian organized crime gang on the other end looking to get access to benefits. How do you really prove who's who? And so, you know, there's, I think, some, some real challenges in the industry uh, and in government. I'm also seeing some good innovation coming from some vendors in the space that might be able to solve it. If we're asking ourselves that question, though, that you just asked, if we can't use this or that technology, then how do we know who's who? That's the same question we're asking in 2022 that we were asking in 2006 and 2014 when you and I have had these conversations over the years, Jeremy. At the core of it, that's where we still are, isn't it? Yeah, a lot hasn't changed. You know, there's the old cartoon where the two dogs are on the computer and one <laughs> turns to his friend, the dog, and says, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Those dogs are going to turn 29 years old on July 5th, which means they're dead because the dogs, right. you know, dogs don't live. memory, you know, may, you know, the Lord, you know, oversee their soul in heaven and whatnot. But I mean, it, this is an old, you know, problem that we're dealing with. It's been a very hard problem to solve. I, I will say, I think, as we're looking at what agencies are doing with, you know, with login or VA, I think there's a very logical um, idea that's not getting nearly enough attention, which is, you know, I already went through a really onerous process to prove who I am when I went to the DMV to get my driver's license. I went through a similar process to go to the post office to prove who I am to get my passport. Um, they weren't great experiences. I'd like to find a way to reuse them. Basically, how could I ask the DMV to vouch for me, say, with a mobile driver's license app? rather than have login.gov or the VA or another agency basically try and create the new digital DMV to replicate that crappy experience I already went through. I mean, in-person identity proofing is hard. Doing it remotely online is also pretty hard. Um, we're starting to see some states roll out mobile driver's licenses. In fact, when I was running the NSTIC program for the Obama administration, we funded the first pilots of those You know, 10 years ago now, which got those started. I mean, those are the kinds of things that we should really be, in my view, investing in, in terms of trying to catalyze their adoption among the states. Because when you think about both security, leveraging a robust in-person proofing process the government already puts you through, and customer experience, not making me go through this whole process, you know, again, recreating the DMV. Let me just reuse a credential I already have, and let's close that gap between the, the physical, you know, credentials we carry in our wallets or our jackets and, you know, the digital transactions we're trying to engage in today. What's the holdup for me reusing those? Because as you're describing that, I'm thinking about my passport experience, the time I went to uh, qualify for trusted traveler through the Transportation Security Administration. There are everybody, uh, uh, no, a lot of people have those touch points. And I wonder what the holdup is from, from those being reusable. Yeah, I mean, you know, honestly, Francis, I think it's a matter of priorities. Uh, you know, we're not, you know, between getting, you know, you know, I think it's the last two administrations have not really focused on digital identity. The Hill, uh, while there's a great bill that, you know, Congressman Foster and Katko and Langevin and Loudermilk have introduced in the House, hopefully we'll see a Senate, you know, counterpart soon that would actually focus on accelerating mobile driver's licenses. It really hasn't gotten elevated to the kind of issue that, well, you or I might think it should. And so where we're seeing investments at the federal level, you know, it's $187 million to log in, but that's focused on having login build a new digital DMV. The Labor Department has $140 million BPA for states to help them with identity proofing and unemployment. We can figure out how to do, you know, dollars like that just for one-off identity proofing programs. I'd much rather see why don't we actually, you know, put those dollars together you know, say put 500 million into the states in terms of grant dollars to catalyze the deployment of mobile driver's licenses, get better standards in place so that they're all interoperable. You know, these are the kinds of things that the Foster CATCO bill, uh, the Improving Digital Identity Act would do. 
And we really think it's time it gets more attention. Is there some other place in the world where this is happening now that we could use as a model or we, would we have to kind of figure this out from from scratch? I, I think, you know, I, I like to say that while we can learn from what other countries are doing, you know, you can look at the Estonian national ID, which, you know, is this beautiful smart card solution for a country of 1.4 million people. I mean, the population is less than Fairfax County, Virginia. You know, that's not necessarily a, a, a model here. Likewise, you can look at India, a country of over a billion people with ADAR, which is centrally stored biometrics. That's not going to fly here. I've been saying for a while that we need a distinctly American solution. Um, so you know, look, it's, it's worth looking at what's worked and what hasn't worked in other countries. But for a whole bunch of reasons, you know, we're not going to do a national ID. We don't need one. What we really just need to do is close the gap between the nationally recognized authoritative credentialing systems we use in the U.S. that are all stuck in the physical world and, you know, come up with ways that we can use them online. That, you know, to me is where I think we have a path forward that most people would, uh, would get behind. Jeremy Grant, great to talk to you as always. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it, Francis. You can read more about the VA's move to login.gov in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Today's the last day to register for the Government Innovation Strategy and Technology Conference. It's happening tomorrow at the International Spy Museum in downtown D.C. The lineup is great, and you can find a link to read about that lineup and learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. CFO Act agencies will choose two workforce priorities to support over the next four years. A memo from the Associate Director of the Office of Personnel Management, Rob Schreiber, says agencies will outline strategies for doing that in their human capital operating plans. Terry Gertens, President and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. She's former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Labor. Terry, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. I confess, as I read Rob's memo, the more I read it, the more I confuse myself. So help me understand this. There are four primary priorities. There are four enabling priorities. How are they connected together? Are the primary ones more important than the enabling ones? Or how is all of this structured? Welcome. Well, Francis, it's great to be here. And thanks for bringing up this really important topic. And you, you've got a great question there, but I would actually take a couple of steps back. I think this is really... Um, implementing guidance to agencies and especially their Chicos to develop those human capital operating plans, but they should be nested. And so what I'm really seeing here is a consistency of guidance from the president's management agenda to the cross-agency performance goals to the agency strategic plans and now down to the specifics of those human capital operating plans. And it says, these are the things that are going to help you pull all of this together. So I would say it's a really a, a very consistent set of guidance, and I'm very encouraged by the, the underlying messages here. Okay, so if that's the case, then it strikes me, because this memo says, Chief Financial Officers Act agencies, as I cited in the introduction, are required to select two priorities that they will continue to support until the issuance of the next report in 2026, and as you just referenced, we'll need to outline strategies for the select priorities in their human capital operating plans. If there's eight priorities here, why would agencies only pick two? Or is that just the floor, do you think, as for what OPM is going for? And if agencies uh, choose to do more, that's good. Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the four primary priorities that you see listed here are all already very closely intertwined. It's all about data, data, data data, 
um, the systems and the people to use that data and a mindset change that they call anticipatory workforce management, we would have called predictive or strategic workforce development. So if you think about it that way, what they're saying is, I'm going to deal you four cards. Eventually, you're going to have to play all of them. Um, And they all come really closely related, but agencies may be at different places related to those four. So it allows them to choose where they can make the, the most rapid progress. All right. The four primary priorities are leveraging technology and modernizing IT processes, recruitment, succession planning, and knowledge transfer. That's the second one. The third one's enhancing employee experience, fostering employee well-being, and building a diverse and inclusive workforce. And number four is fostering an agile organization and the growth mindset. There's a lot of stuff there that is, in my opinion, strategic rather than tactical. What, how does that impact the way that an, uh, an agency leader at whatever level that leader resides in moving forward on this? captures a lot of things that people who watch this space have been talking about for a long time. So for example, when Napa released its uh, report on OPM last spring, we talked about making OPM the government's strategic human capital um, organization. And I think this kind of guidance puts them very clearly in that seat. And then we talked about Chico's needing to be at the table in their organizations as a strategic partner, because at the end of the day, the best metric for an effective human capital strategy is mission accomplishment, agency mission accomplishment. So all of this comes together to say, we want you to be forward thinking. You see, you see language in here about um, succession planning, knowledge transfer, Um, reskilling and workforce development strategies, but you can't do that until you have the data systems in place to know what you're planning for. So I think those first four priorities are all about getting your human capital workforce trained, understanding your data assets that you currently have and the data assets that you need, and then investing in the technology and the analytical tools that will give you the understanding to shape that for uh, to shape that forward-looking workforce. So, as I read those primary priorities for the first time, as somebody who is a consumer of the work that you and your colleagues at Napa do, those concepts were all very familiar to me. Some of the enabling priorities, though, jumped out at me as just kind of a different way of looking at this concept, problem, challenge, whatever you want to apply to it. Priority five, and these are the enabling priorities, enhancing customer experience, Mm -hmm. six, leveraging data as a strategic asset. We've kind of heard a lot about both of those before. Number uh, Priority seven, preparedness and resilience. That's another one that we've heard a fair amount uh, over time about. Priority eight, developing an agency foresight capability. And underneath this, when it says, leverage the power of strategic foresight methodologies to minimize surprise and create an anticipatory governance and planning culture at all agency levels. I, in in all the years I've been doing this, I've never heard that kind of language before, I don't think, in any kind of governance or guidance document, Terry. And it's fascinating language to me. Well, certainly not in the workforce space, right? Usually in the workforce space, we talk about hiring, you know, streamlining hiring practices, clearing up the, the um, Uh, security clearance backlog, all of those kinds of things. We talk super tactical. But if you're thinking about anticipatory management, 
And I certainly think what you're seeing here is a response to the pandemic, right? Nobody saw it coming. Nobody was prepared. How do we um, not get surprised the next time? You have to build a workforce that has that competency. And if you're going to build that workforce, it starts with human capital management and it starts with strategic workforce planning. So I think you're absolutely right. It's really interesting to see it here, but it says to the agencies, if I was reading this, it would say, you better go find these people and you better figure out how to bring them into the government and give them the data and the tools they need to do strategic foresight because we don't want to be here the next time. I'm, this is a topic, this is a concept that I'm not very familiar with. Is this a thing in the private sector? Is this something that private sector organizations use? I mean, strategic foresight methodologies, does this already exist or is this something that we're talking about the creation of in addition to the implementation of? It certainly exists and it exists within government. It exists within DOD. It exists within Department of Homeland Security folks who are, who are doing environmental scans, um, looking at trends, aggregating data, looking at big movers in the you know, in the news cycle, those kinds of things to be able to anticipate and plan. It's also very big in the enterprise risk management space where people are looking out there trying to anticipate what risks may be coming and build resilience into their systems. And so actually, you know, number seven is pre preparedness and resilience that follows directly on from foresight. And again, it's all enabled by technology, human capital skills, and systems that aggregate all of that kind of intelligence into a coherent picture that managers can respond to. So data feeds that methodology, data feeds a lot of these other elements, and you referenced that earlier, data, data, data is what you see all throughout this. You talked about collaboration in the C-suite earlier in our conversation, and it strikes me this memo is just another example of how that collaboration continues to become tighter and tighter and more necessary and more necessary over time because it strikes me that the Chico's best friend in executing some of these things is going to be the agency CIO, but also the CFO and the acquisition team that's going to help this person get the tools that he or she needs to be able to do all of these things. And the chief data officer yeah. and the hiring managers, right? So collectively, they've got to look at their organization with that foresight capability, anticipate what their workforce needs are going to be for the future, map a plan to take their current workforce and turn it into that through reskilling, succession planning, knowledge transfer, hiring, right? So you're right. They've got to inventory their current data assets, know what they have, what their gaps are. They've got to look at their current systems. They've got to build budget requests. And this is where the technology modernization fund can be really helpful to them. The other piece I think that this connects really strongly to is the Human Resources Quality Service Management Office, the QSMO, right? Because they're an enabling function here to provide kind of a marketplace of these kinds of tools that agencies can execute rapid acquisition of and bring those kinds of um, features and capabilities into their organization. It's not, it's a very different and modern approach to human capital, and I'm thrilled to see it. 
Uh, quick sidebar, when the uh, Trump administration stood up the quality service management organizations, I tried to call them Quizmos. And Suzette <laughs> Kant said, no, that's a sandwich joint, so we can't call it that. So uh, shout out to her. Um, one more thing. What, do you, th- what I don't see here, and I think this is probably a good thing, for, especially for the Chico community, I don't see five or 10 or 15 boxes that they have to check off. I see you need to outline strategies for the priorities that you choose. You choose the priorities, and then you have to outline your strategy and your human capital operating plan. And I don't see much more requirement than that. That's probably a good thing, isn't it? Well, I think so. I think it's a recognition that across the federal government, agencies and their human capital operations are at very different places, very different maturities. They have very different human capital problems to solve, right? The Chico for HHS has a different problem to solve than the Chico for education or the, you know, the Chico for HUD. And so it allows them to tailor their, their focus and their priorities based on their agency's challenges But again, I go back to what I said up front, this is all very, very nested. It's very consistent with the administration's, you know, overarching cloud goals and all the way down to saying, here's the tools, we're here to help. And I think it's, you know, again, I come back to, I think it's very encouraging to see this degree of integration, this focus on modernization and this idea that we have to get more forward looking or we're never going to have the workforce we need to accomplish our missions. Terry Gurton, terrific analysis as always. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Francis. You can find a link to the memo from Rob Shriver in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Federal agencies are almost four months in on the work they have under the Office of Management and Budgets memo on implementing zero trust. Agency chief data officers only have a couple more weeks to meet some of the requirements of the memo. Leo Tadeo is chief information security officer and president of the federal division at Aptgate. He's former special agent in charge of the special operations cyber division of the New York office of the FBI. Aptgate sponsors today's Daily Scoop podcast. Leo, welcome. It's great to see you again. Uh, enjoyed our conversation at the Zero Trust Summit a little while ago. What's your sense of where agencies are today? on the zero trust work that they have to do. We actually have some good data on that. Uh, AppGate and GDIT sponsored a survey recently of 300 IT professionals in government, and their responses show that they are fairly confident uh, above the 60% level that they will meet some of the additional, uh, some of the guidelines that have been set, some of the dates that have been set in the guidelines. And so I think uh, from the government's point of view, from the IT professional's point of view, they are on track uh, with a ZT, a zero trust plan. What do you think is the reason for that? Is it the deadlines that were in that memo from OMB in January that said you will do this by certain time? Is that uh, what you think maybe is the forcing function sounds kind of draconian, but that might be what it is. Well, I think part of it is that some of the early work to harden environments can be classified in an, as an effort to achieve zero trust principles. So for example, identity and access management um, spending and focus uh, was underway well before the executive order, and that is one of the main pillars of zero trust. So they sort of had a head start because zero trust isn't 
new technology. It is new uh, approach to thinking about security, especially in a perimeterless uh, world that we live in. And so the early efforts or efforts that have been underway for years now fit into the zero trust architecture and effort. I went back and looked at the memo in anticipation of you coming in today, Leo, and I noted that that jumped out at me today that didn't back in January, that there was an acknowledgement in there that a number of organizations in government are already on this path, have already made progress. And I think there was even some uh, allusion to the fact that if you're that if you're far enough along, you should help other agencies that aren't as far along. What's that collaboration ideally look like, do you think? What what would be something that one agency could offer another agency that was not as far advanced, do you think? Well, there are certainly lessons learned and best practices that uh, need to be developed and shared. But what the survey also called out was that agencies were having a difficult time developing the expertise necessary to get to the more advanced levels of zero trust. So, for example, the use of AI for analysis and alerting is something that is difficult to do across multiple sensors. And so having um, a, an expert, having um, a, a contractor that has expertise in a particular area that is complex uh, is a way to accelerate the progress towards a more mature zero trust enterprise. You wrote recently that the U.S. government's looking for three things in a zero trust solution, scalability, resilience, and user experience. I want to touch on each one of those, but I'll go backwards because what, what's the user experience exactly in a zero trust solution? Well, primarily user experience turns to ease of use and latency, meaning their uh, experience is not impeded by legacy technologies like fire, layers of firewalls or load balancers or VPNs that have to route traffic in ways that delay transmission. And so user experience is important because if a user is having an unpleasant experience, they may work around a security control, and we know this as security professionals, the easier you make it for the user to implement security, the more security we'll have. All right. Resilience seems to be obvious. We've talked about cyber resilience on this program a thousand times if we've done it once. Is there any more to it than what I think most people understand cyber resilience should be? Right. So resilience in, in every enterprise is, is critical, and that really means the need to be able to recover from either an interruption that is intentional or an interruption that is caused by uh, a system failure. And so legacy technologies were deployed in the following fashion. In order to obtain resilience in a legacy environment, what you did is you, you created two appliances of the same type and you created a hot, hot environment where they would fail over. That required things like load balancers. And those were congestion points that created delay and latency and again impacted user experience. So what we're seeing today is a more uh, distributed architecture in the form of software defined perimeter. And that allows for auto restore and auto recover uh, for these appliances. It allows for a distributed architecture, which is more capable of absorbing those types of impacts. I want to come back to the word architecture in a moment, Leo. Um, but the third item that you wrote about in what the government's looking for is scalability. And again, it's kind of like resilience. That seems obvious. The, the definition of that kind of seems obvious on the surface. Is there more to it than what I would see on the surface? 
No, scalability in the government is critical because the government, of course, operates some of the largest user groups in the country. Uh, if you think about the Department of Defense, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of concurrent users for a particular um, workload. And those types of scale are not easy to achieve with some legacy technology. So the idea, of again, of having um, security that's delivered as code, meaning the uh, infrastructure and the configurations are machine-readable and can be deployed uh, automatically. They can expand to meet uh, throughput requirements. They can expand to meet user concurrency requirements. Those are the types of scalability um, solid requirements that the government demands. All right. Uh, the cyber uh, memo that we referenced earlier in our conversation lists some of the kind of the potential legacy applications that organizations have to think about securing mainframes and so on and so forth. What, why aren't the tools that organizations use to secure that stuff sufficient anymore in order to be able to meet both the spirit and the letter of the zero trust memo and the guidance? Well, some of the legacy applications were not designed to support the type of security controls that we have today. So for example, multi-factor authentication at the application level, some applications that were developed many years ago just cannot support multi-factor authentication. So it's important to have an overlay that is capable of implementing multi-factor authentication in order to uh, secure access. If you think about something like a mainframe, that is a, a, um, a compute environment that almost always exists on premises where you can control the perimeter. And today, that is a model that just doesn't exist. Our workforce is distributed. Not everyone, in fact, very few people are on-premises these days. So you have to have new security controls that allow access to that mainframe from multiple types of devices, from multiple locations, through multiple networks. And traditional tools uh, just don't adapt that well. You mentioned the fact that folks, a lot of folks are not on premises now. I'm having conversations with the Chicos all across government who are talking about their back to the office plans and the fact that their back to the office plan today might be completely different a year from now, might be completely different two years from now. How would you advise somebody who's thinking about that architecture? I'll go back to the A word. Um, how would you advise somebody to think about their architecture today, knowing that they need to have some flexibility and it might, the, the workforce they're supporting and the work they're supporting might be done completely differently at some point in the future than it is today? Right. And it goes back to implementing security as code. That approach will allow the flexibility that these C-level uh, executives need in order to adapt to the changes that are certainly coming. Uh, what you don't want to do is invest in physical appliances that are geographically limiting uh, your uh, network traffic and your user experience. Those types of investments tend to uh, decay over time, and we have seen sometimes those uh, decay life cycles are a lot faster than we anticipated. COVID certainly accelerated the need to have that kind of flexibility. And again, I turn back to the more of your infrastructure that you can deploy as code, including security as code, the more flexible your options will be. All right. With all due respect to our friends at OMB who are, have put this guidance together, if I'm sitting in an agency, how will I know 
a year from now, two years from now, whatever point in the future, that my efforts along these lines have been successful. I'm going to get hacked. So maybe the number of hacks or the severity of the penetration is one way. But what, what are the right measures to know whether we're doing it right? Well, there is actually a formal maturity model that an agency can use to assess their level of uh, uh, their how advanced they are in their zero trust journey. And that uh, model is distributed by CISA. Uh, I think it's a very effective model. There are five pillars to it. And there are three stages that an agency can gauge themselves against. So I think if you are looking at um, a way to assess an agency according to a model, CISA certainly has provided some guidance in, in that sense. But you ask an interesting question that is more broadly applicable to security in general. And as a CISO, I can tell you that making sure something doesn't happen isn't really the kind of metric you can des- you can describe to your board the same way you can de- describe ROI for a capital investment, for example. So for a security professional, the there is uh, somewhat of a humorous way to describe our job. If you spend too much money on security and nothing happens, then you're wasting money. If you spend too little and something does happen, then you've not spent enough. And it's the challenge that security professionals have, and that is to spend what is adequate based on the risk and taking a risk management approach to spending and other aspects of security. Yeah, a federal CIO in the, I want to say 2007, 8, 9 timeframe described it to me as, here's my challenge. I have to ask my CFO and my secretary for more money so that what didn't happen, more of it doesn't happen. That's the challenge that that people are up against from a budget perspective. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think there are some other metrics. Maybe we'll see our adversaries pivoting towards other ways of influencing us, other ways of stealing value from us. Maybe their tactics will change based on our approach. But this is an evolving effort. We can't rest on one type of approach. Certainly, zero trust is an important point in the evolution of information security. It won't be the last, but it's as advanced as we have right now, and it's important for us to focus on it. Leo Tadeo of Abgate, thanks very much. You can read more about Zero Trust in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It would help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast is back tomorrow afternoon. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.